Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Olivia Block, media artist and composer based in Chicago. Olivia's new album, Innocent Passage in the Territorial Sea, is out now on Room 40. A record, as we mentioned in the early part of this conversation, that was put together over lockdown and informed in part by Olivia's experiences on psychedelic mushrooms. Feels to me like a record that pays homage to the power of generating internal universes inside the mind with their own forces, their own dynamics, their own languages. It's got this beautiful internal logic to it different parts of the record feeding into other bits, informing others, this kind of cyclical, circumventory energy going on. Really, really enjoying that one. So head over to oliviablock.net. That's Olivia's website. Head over to oliviablock.bandcamp.com where you can hear the record. And obviously head over to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening for links to Olivia's picks and her music. Thank you for listening. Head over to coffee, ko-fi.com slash crucial listening to donate to the podcast, keep everything ticking by. And thank you as always for your support. Hope you enjoy this episode. This is Olivia Block on Crucial Listening. Olivia, welcome to Crucial Listening. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Great to have you. So we're going to talk about three important records. Um, but first, I want to ask about your new album, Innocent Passage in the Territorial Sea, which is out on Room 40. So I want to start with a few of the details that included with the press release of this, one of which is about you adopting a practice of listening with intention while on psychedelic mushrooms during lockdown. So how did you arrive at this practice and what was the appeal in this practice for you? Well, it was kind of, I don't want to, I mean, it was good timing not or terrible timing. I don't know. It depends on which you choose. <laughs> but um, right before the lockdown, I had um, decided that I wanted to take some mushrooms just because I thought it would be an interesting thing to do. And so a friend of mine had a person who could, you know, supply me with some mushrooms who grew them. <laughs> and um, this is all very like sorted. I have to, you have to get into the details of how you actually get the mushrooms to die. <laughs> but it's actually totally fine. It's like, there's no dark alley or anything like that. It's just like this guy's just grows mushrooms and he's really into plants. So um, yeah, so I got some and then basically the lockdown happened and 
everything was canceled. So I was just home all the time and I decided to just take some of these mushrooms and I had a lot of them. Like I just basically got too many. And so I took them and then I was just working in my studio and I have this, um, this vintage organ that I really like that's on that, the new album a lot. It's very like powerful. It's this analog organ that Korg made that mimics the, um, the Hammond B3. So it has like these overtone bars that you can pull. And when you pull the overtone bars, more overtones, it's, it's almost like a pipe organ where you can hear more overtones as you pull out the bars. Right. So you start with root note and then you can slowly like bring in these overtones so i noticed as i was doing these mushrooms like i wasn't tripping i didn't do and i wasn't microdosing. it was somewhere kind of between those two things so that my senses were just hyper aware of sound in this totally different way than i had experienced before so when i was changing the sound by bringing in each overtone, like I could feel on my skin, even like the changes in the air. And it was just this completely different embodied way of listening. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. And it, and it, that process kind of led the entire album because I was playing these chords and notes that my body was responding to in that way. And those kind of patterns and notes then became like the fundamental parts of each of the songs in the record. Um, and then, yeah. And then the other thing that I was doing is just being outside a lot and kind of noticing like how I could feel plants and things like that. And, (laughs) And it just made me in this corny way, very just happy to be alive and be on the planet at this moment and just looking around and seeing that everything is, just verdant and beautiful and there are trees with leaves on them and it might not be like that forever so right i was appreciating that more on the mushrooms and when you were working in the studio on mushrooms i don't know how easy this is going to be to articulate if it is at all but was there anything specific that you felt yourself being compelled towards sonically or 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 anything that really came into focus when you were on mushrooms that perhaps didn't outside of that experience? Yes, I think um, the bass, the really, really low bass um, mm. frequencies were way more appealing to me than they usually are. And um, certain kinds of repetition also of, of the bass patterns were also appealing to me where they usually were not before. And there were just certain... In in a way, you know, it's funny because I think when people think of an artist doing mushrooms or psychedelics, you might assume that the work or the music or whatever gets a lot weirder and more psychedelic. But for me, it was actually just the opposite. It it kind of just focused my work into these tonal centers Hmm. and these these kind of intervals, like intervallic relationships between notes that I just felt in my body. So it's more... um, it's much more of a tonal album than my most of my work, and that's because of the mushrooms. Another element that seems to have played quite a prominent part is you rereading Annika Van's Ice over lockdown as well, which is a book that I really enjoyed, actually, when I read it a few years back. Um, I mean, what was it that drew you to the book? and What was it that appealed in the book to you? I think... 
Well, for one, I, I'm glad you read the book and loved it. I think it's so good. And, and, and it's kind of like an underground thing. Like a lot of people know about it, but it never quite, it's not like yeah. even Octavia Butler or something like, you know, it's just right. this strange book. Cause it's almost, I mean, people call it science fiction, but it's not even science fiction, really. It's just more like surreal, yeah. you know? And I really like it because I tend to think in terms of impressions. Like, I don't really think in terms of stories or narrative or language. I just think in terms of, like, impressions with images and emotions attached to those. And that book was really, to me, kind of designed that way. It was just like... yeah. You know, it was just like these strange scenes with that didn't quite make sense, but there were these repetitions of these images with the ice and then yeah. this girl who just can't even tell if this is a real person or um, it was almost like this hyper subjective, unreliable narrator, which I thought yeah. was very interesting. You know, like, <laughs> it's like a complete creep, actually. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but also I just loved the this idea of like ice taking it over everything like it's usually because we're so used to our narrative of global warming where everything's melting and this uh -huh. was kind of just the opposite you know which I found kind of very intriguing yeah and sounds like that this uh or was 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 maybe involved in the generation of like a speculative sci-fi narrative that you came up with them I and i heard as well that in collaborating with jan saint Werner, you kind of outlined some of this to him i mean i would understand if maybe it's not something you want to pour out into the opening and leave people to kind of figure out their own imagery and stuff but is there any details that you could tell me about this kind of sci-fi well that you had in mind when you were doing this record well, the funny thing is that I think the sci-fi world that I had in mind was our world. I mean, our right. world became a sci-fi world. So it was right. almost more like I I was just making a soundtrack to kind of understand what was happening, you know, because mm. it was just so strange and awful and surreal. So it just, it, it almost just kind of became like the most sensible thing to do, you know? Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, so I didn't I didn't necessarily like have a different um, landscape in mind. It was just more trying to conceive of of all of the complicated things that were happening. One thing that also piqued my interest is you talk about using a broken mellotron. How was it broken? Oh, it was so cool. I love this mellotron <laughs> so much. It was, um, I, so I recorded this mellotron at, um, electrical audio in here in Chicago and which is, um, Albini studio. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's got all of these instruments in it. And I had this recording of, of there, of this mellotron there, which basically didn't play right in that the, the reel-to-reel -reel tapes for each note of each instrument were kind of like would stop and start and they sounded really warped and strange and so wow. i so basically it was just like wrong it didn't sound the way that a mellotron was supposed to sound but i kind of became attached to the warped quality of it because it just seemed to fit in with the world that everything is just strange and grotesque and warped and 
you know, like on, on one hand, there's just this whole world of like social media and everything seems very grotesque there. And then the other world is this weird lockdown where you can't touch anything or go anywhere, or see anyone. And so it was just like, yeah, just felt like, where was I going with that? I forgot the question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's how the Mellotron was broken. Oh, yeah. So, right. So it just felt um, like an appropriate kind of sound where like this, the broken tape, the kind of delicate broken tape just became like a symbol in my mind for the world just mm. being broken and delicate. But to explain quickly about um, what, what a Mellotron is in case anyone doesn't know, like, so a Mellotron is an instrument that was very popular in like the seventies and you hear it on many iconic rock records. Like you can hear it in Cashmere by Led Zeppelin. So it's, it's um, a keyboard that has reel to reel tapes inside of samples of instruments so that you can create these like orchestral layers of, of like orchestral instruments, but they're actually tapes. So when you press down on a note, you're actually making the mechanics of the tape go. And so of course, you know, you can imagine like, there's no way that these things are going to stay in time <laughs> and speed. They're, they're going to slow down, they're going to yeah. speed up. And so, yeah, so it's kind of a wonderful instrument. So wild. Uh, see, I didn't yeah. know about the mechanics of that, but, um, that seems wholly impractical. <laughs> That's oh, so cool. Ridiculous! I know it's it's really <laughs> funny that that there was such a thing as a mellotron. I mean, I think the Beatles used the mellotrons too, and so it kind of it goes it, it goes with that time period where people were enamored with reel to reel tape and like all of these things that you could do with it, you mm. know, as a material, which was a wonderful time in music. I mean, that was just such a because reel to reel tape is just still nothing sounds like it i mean you no. when you record on a on a really thick reel-to-reel tape it just sounds different so so there's that kind of homage as well and you also released a track uh as i said you collaborated with jan saint Werner, a track called kind um how did you come to work with jan well, I've known Jan for a while, and i he's just a person that I, first of all, just really like as a person. I think he's just lovely, and I know his wife, who's a very talented um, visual artist. And he's been super supportive of my work for a long time. Like, he's just, he, he just kind of, you know, finds artists that he likes, and he's, and he supports them, and he did that with me. And so, and I also just love his work. I think he does really interesting things with sound. And so I found this, I was thinking like, oh, this is, this would be the perfect record to bring Jan in, like, and see what he could do with this material. And I had this extra track um, where I just did this almost like, it's a very somber sounding organ line. It almost sounds pipe organ-esque. And it uses the same seven notes that I use basically on the entire record. So I gave Jan the track with the organ and he was he was into it. He and he liked the tracks from the record. And so he took the organ track and he kind of layered these sounds that sound almost incongruous with the organ. Like they they just they almost exist on this totally different level. Mm. And I 
thought it was amazing. Like I really loved what he did. It was so strange and like perfectly sound. It was like the perfect thing for like a science fiction soundtrack. And he was at that time kind of listening to a lot of Roland, um, Kane. I don't know how to say his last name actually, but yeah, K-A-Y-N. Um, and his, you know, cause Jim O'Rourke just released a lot of his works. And so I think that, that Jan was very influenced by Roland Kane's work. And that kind of came into the mix as well, which also seemed totally perfect. So it's just this really interesting track that has these two layers that are almost like going against each other but then they also work it's mm. it's very interesting awesome um well i absolutely love the new records i'm looking forward to hearing that chat track with Jan as well um i think Thank what you. i love most is knowing it in the context of you having read Anna Kavan's book that's got such a specific internal logic to it which yeah. seems to belong to that universe and almost like a little snow globe you know it just doesn't mm. touch the outside your record has for me that kind of sensation as well of just these lines of interconnection that exclusively kind of connect within itself which is so compelling exactly. yeah. i absolutely love it thank you i'm so <laughs> glad yeah that's the way i see it too it's just its own world wicked well i thoroughly encourage people to check it out when this broadcasts it will be out so do go check it it's on room 40 like i say um olivia let's go to your three important records and one question i like to ask before we go into the records specifically is how you thought about the term important when picking your list of records so was there a way that you understood important in order to come up with the list that you did yeah i mean i never went i i didn't want to use the list as an opportunity to give you my favorite all-time records because mm -hmm. sometimes i think that that's not as interesting as just picking some things that i think are just interesting there's right. really interesting records for either completely musical re reasons or for reasons outside the music like maybe the because the composer is kind of interesting or something like that so i kind of took that approach nice okay yeah. well let's go for one of the records specifically then which one do you want to go for first Cool. Um, let's go for the Alemu Aga, who is, that's the Ethiopique volume 11, where Alemu Aga plays the Harp of David. Yes. So, yeah, let's start with, um, if you could give me a little, little introduction as to why this album is important to you. Well, first, I think it's just absolutely stunning. I love this mm. record so much, just the way it sounds. I think that it's the tonal palette is very narrow and so i think i connect this record in a way with my recent with my album coming uh -huh. out now because because there's only very few notes are used on this harp of david which is almost like a lyre it's like a big um it's a sacred in, uh, instrument that is used in ethiopian um religious ceremony and christian orthodox e ethiopia practice mm. um just kind of butchered the way that that sounded but um yeah so people use this this harp of david when they're like meditating and doing these very like internal kind of um prayers and things it's not really used in church services it's more used like in the home and so i think 
think that part of the beauty of the sound of the record is that it really sounds like that. Like it, 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 mm. it's a very intimate sound. Everything is closely mic'd and there's just a few notes being plucked at a time. And Alemo Aga's voice is just very beautiful. It's like he's singing a lullaby or something in every yeah. track. Yeah. Um, do you remember how you first discovered the record? Yeah, I mean, basically anything in that series, in the Ethiopic series, I will buy. I just think that <laughs> it's one of the best series of, of music of any kind ever, in my opinion. Just everything is just like a revelation. And I love, you know, it, that, that series kind of pulled me in with the more jazz-focused records. Um, but then this one, I just heard it because it was in the series. And then I was like, wow, this is really different, actually. This is like a really special sound mm. yeah do you remember when you first came into it how long has it been in your in your life oh gosh it's been at least mm, 10 or i want to say 10 years 12 years something so i i think i discovered it after it had already come out right um but then it was just like one that i didn't have in my collection or something and then i heard it and i was like and i remember hearing it and then sharing a link on Facebook and everyone was just completely like, Oh, what is this? This is so <laughs> beguiling. I've never heard anything like this before. Cause it just has this really enchanting sound. Yeah. And it's what it's about. Like, is it like an hour long, the record, um, just centered on this, as you say, this really narrow instrument palette. I feel like you get, into such a state of intimacy with the sound of that instrument just over the course of, you know, the duration of a single listen. Um, you know, let alone, I haven't spent a lot of time with it, so let alone 10 years. But um, It's almost like, like I don't think of it in the way, or, or I don't listen to it in a way that I listen to other albums necessarily because it's so, it, it doesn't have, again, like sort of back to this idea of narrative and how I don't really think in that way. It's kind of like a non-narrative sound. Like it just kind yes. of floats and it doesn't really change. Um, but there are sort of things that dip in and out and maybe the key changes on one of the tracks, but every track sounds alike. So essentially it's kind of like a drone record with like singing yes. on top. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm intrigued about that actually, because I've seen you mention... Oh, I wish I could remember which release it was in reference to. I think it was um, October 1984, where you say, or is at least listed in the liner notes, that you kind of offer a suggestion of a different form of listening. And it's like you might dip out of the record and come back in again. Um, is that the kind of listening that you adopt with this record as well? It feels kind of, you know, my initial acquaintance, it's kind of built for that, this sort of chicaning listening of like dipping and increasing concentration. Definitely. And I think, and I don't mean dipping in and out as if like it's in the background. I mean, no. it's, it really does feel like something you could meditate to where you, where you, you know, maybe you could use this music as the focus of the meditation and at some points you're focused on it and you're really concentrating and then you kind of lose that focus, but then you come back and the music is kind of still there holding the same kind of um, patterns and tensions that it had before. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I think it is like that. I love that. That's my favorite thing where you're like, 
it almost stretches around you you're like you could leave the room and come back thinking of it yeah i like that that's a nice image yeah that is really how it feels Hmm. um and this this instrument so i mean had you uh, I, th- I, th- I believe, um, you know, I, I don't know, I may have heard other things with it, and, but this is the first time I've heard this instrument. It's such an uh, interesting tone, like that buzz that accompanies each of the string plucks. I think it, there's like a leather, a leather, I think called leather thong, like between the strings, it's just yeah. causing this buzzing, right? But um, what, what is it you like about the, like the tone of this instrument as well? Well, I love that it sounds like something in western music that is wrong like it sounds like right. like if you detune a string too much and it and it slaps against the fretboard or something like that right. yes yes <laughs> you know like but in this case it's just adding this really beautiful timbral element to the note because it's it's not like a pure it's not like a bell like tone it's like this buzzing like there's the tone and then there's a buzzing kind of timbre on top of it which is really interesting and something you don't you don't, or at least I don't necessarily associate with like, you know, liturgical music or anything like no. that or hymns. Yeah. So it's really cool. Yeah. And I think you touched on it. His voice as well is unbelievable. There's his moments oh where it, like it dips down to like a, such a low note. He just starts whispering. Yes. Uh, which is uh, just uh, the first time it happened. It just completely took me back. That was incredible. I know. It's just mesmerizing. I mean, it's part of this mesmer music. So I think mm. like, I'm, I'm actually really curious about how this was recorded. Like, how did they, he must have been really close to the mic, you know? Yeah. So even just the recording of it is, it has some similarities to kind of like, almost like lowercase jazz or like, right. you know, the, the, the kind of very quiet, like a new music that's happening now. So there are some similarities with the approach to the very close, like you can almost hear like the plucking of the strings, you know? Mm-hmm. And the, as you say, like the whisper, you can hear that. It's just, it's very delicate. Yeah. Um, tell me about this. Ethiopic's series as well so like what else is in this collection well it's it's the most well known for like kind of jazz ensembles that um most of them came out i think in the like 70s 60s 70s that kind of era and a lot of like groups that use like traditional um like jazz instruments and almost have like traditional jazz um, kind of formation, but they use the tonality and the harmonic, um, you know, structures of Ethiopia, which is really interesting because they use completely different modes and Mm. their modes and scales are just really cool. They're so like, you know, there's, there's this kind of exuberant this one exuberant kind of mode i'm trying to remember which one it is like there's a few different there's tazita which is one um i think that might be it but it's just like the happiest it sounds really silly but it's just a very exuberant like scale that they use and it's just like a lot of kind of saxophones just going up and down the scale and it's just lovely beautiful music it's very enchanting well i'm gonna have to check out more of that that's sounds fab um, yeah it, 
I mean, it's not just like jazz ensembles. I think that's what it's the most well known for, but there's also other solo instruments too. Like there's one um, piano record that I really love that's played by um, this woman who is actually a nun. She's still alive and I'm blanking on her name, but I'll give it to you. Do you nice. want to put it in the notes? Yes. She's, that's another one of my favorites of this series. So. <laughs> Olivia, let's go to your second important record now. Which one do you want to go for? Cool. Let's go to the Beatrice Ferreira. I never know if I'm pronouncing her um, name correctly, but... Uh um, yeah, so the the Juelas Entraveradas, which nice. means intertwined footprints. Yeah, I'm sure I'm I'm completely butchering that. I'm sorry, but <laughs> job I can do. <laughs> um, yeah, so give me a little intro to as to why this one is important to you. Well, this is one that I chose because of her. I mean, not only because the music is fantastic and she's very talented, but also just of her place in history, mm. because she was like the one, basically the only woman who was part of this GRM group um, that worked with Pierre Schaeffer and took lessons with like Ligeti and all of these you know, composers. And she really wasn't so well known until recently with all these re-releases hmm. and new releases and i think that um she just she is as good as like parmigiani as good as bale i mean she's just amazing so i think that was one of the reasons i, I wanted to include this do you remember how you first discovered her work yeah i i actually had the pleasure of um hearing this work diffused live through multiple speakers at a festival wow. that I did. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It was amazing. It was like one of the, it was, it was the best multi diffusion, multi-speaker diffusion piece I've ever heard. She was mixing it live and it was just like really, really powerful. And then I was like, who is, I don't even know who this person is. I've never <laughs> heard of her, you know? And of course I tried to talk to her, but I don't, we, didn't speak the same language so it was just like this really funny exchange but i was trying to tell her like oh my gosh that was amazing. <laughs> you know? i have no idea if she understood what i was saying but but yeah she and i just was like i think one of the things that i i noticed about her work is that you know she, the, the, the like the subjects that she uses as her field recordings are kind of subtly different than like like source recordings that for instance like parmigiani would use right so i think like the the track that i really like is um the la babal de chien chien à la mamère which is mm. the ball of the old lady's dog and <clears throat> i just think that's it's first of all it's just masterfully composed like she just has it's just like kind of there are moments where there's a reality that comes together of concrete sounds in a time and a place. And then there's a pivot all of a sudden with she'll, you know, have a <clears throat> recording of her own voice talking. And then all of a sudden, 
everything will just become atomized. And it's just like particles that just explode outward. And then they come back into this little moment in time and space with her dog. And there's something like, I think, I mean, partly this is my own projection, but I kind of feel like there's a feminine approach to this because it's almost like a domestic scene or something like she's, right, she's right. home, with the dog and, and, and even just the name, the titles that she's using are very different from like, again, using one of my other favorites, Parmigiani, as an example, like the title to one of his um, CD collections is called like the um, creation of the world. It's that in, in French. And so instead of like the creation of the world, she's kind of like, this is my dog and I'm throwing a ball to the dog <laughs> and you hear it like bounce on the floor. So it's, it's almost like this to totally um, different approach, which I love. I didn't realize that was her dog. That's so cool. I don't know. I mean, that's what I was assuming because I think that's her voice. Right. So I was assuming that's her dog. Yeah. But that's that's doubly cool. It, it's doubly cool because you can really hear like, I mean, I'm assuming it's her dog because the voice of the dog is like caught so intimately. Like, right. It just, it's yeah. amazing. I don't know how she got these recordings, but you can hear like the little details in this dog's voice and it's really cool yeah i mean that's i think something that i haven't heard enough of beatrice's work at all but there's definitely the sense of uh, like a, a personal experience coming through yeah. like I, I, a lot of my experience with this your um electroacoustic kind of works often has this sort of um attempted objective quality like these sounds are just pulled from like a neutral space and treated quite neutrally as well but yeah this feels like um writing on the back of a postcard or something it's really nice yes that's exactly what i think too and that's yeah it's it's almost like the i mean i think um in a way she kind of reminds me a little bit of luke ferrari who used mm. more voices and things like that but still they weren't <clears throat> like his work didn't really point to himself or like his own life or like one room or one place like you still kind of couldn't get a sense of like where am i in this piece but mm. with this work it's like oh i'm being pulled back it's almost like you know you're being pulled into this time and place and then shoved outside again and then pulled back in and push push back out and yeah. it's just a really cool like back and forth yeah as well i don't know loads about her life but one thing i did read i think it was uh, in connection to this release had like a little biography and it was like that she got involved in the GRM by accident. Um, do you know anything about that? Like it sounds. Yeah, I read that too. And, and no, I don't, I don't really know that much about, <laughs> there isn't actually that much about this woman on the internet. I wish someone would do a biography on her, but no, I don't, I don't really know what, Oh, you know what I think it was actually that she was coming to study with Natalie Boulanger, who is like this piano teacher to like all of these big composers of that time period. And I think that's how she became connected to these other composers. Right. So I think it was Natalie Boulanger, um, I believe that's her name. That was the connection. I think I read that. Gotcha. Um, I want to go back as well to something you said as well. And we were just talking about, about this personal inflection that she brings to work that can often eschew that a fair bit. I mean, 
is that something that you contemplate consciously within your own work? I mean, I think it's something that with at least a couple of your works I've felt quite prominently like this, projecting like definitely internal states. Is this the kind of energy that you think you bring into your music as well? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, and I think like for a long time, I was really, I mean, in a way I, I kind of included um, Beatrice Ferreira because I relate, I feel like I relate to her in some way because I kind of came up during this time when there weren't that many like w other women doing what I was doing. And mm. I had, I was always like very conflicted about like, am I revealing too much emotion? Like, should I, should I pull back on that? Should this be more clinical? Should this be more? So it was always like this internal dialogue that I had where if I was being too personal or too emotional that I might be then relegated to this other, right? you know, like category of like outsider women artists who weren't kind of in the canon or something. So, right. yeah. so I kind of wonder like, so that's why I love this so much. Cause she's just like, fuck it. I don't care. <laughs> I'm putting my dog in here. And it's so cool. I mean, it's really interesting, you know, so. Yeah, so I, I, I think so. I think I do think about that a lot. One other thing that really intrigues me about this release you've picked is it collates three works from over like 17 years. So you've got one from 2001, one from 2007, and another from 2018. And I believe when I first listened, I didn't know that, but it didn't jar me that you had such a large <laughs> stretch of time occurring, I think, you know. But although when I when I when I read about which piece was allegedly like uh, the more modern piece, I was like, okay, I, I feel like I can pick up on this. But they feel very unified. I mean, what is it that enables, from your view, like three pieces from such a stretch of time to share company so coherently? That's a really good question. I mean, I think that I think that there's um, a similar quality to all of them of this kind of suspension of, of like a listening in a suspended field rather than like um, a, a, a field of like where things are developed in a really particular yes. way. It's more mm -hmm. about like this just being in a place like which I I tend to gravitate more towards. I'd rather just like have a composer make a place for me to be in rather than a story for me to understand or like a take, I don't want to go on a journey necessarily. I just want to be somewhere, <laughs> yes, you know, so yeah. I feel like that's what all of these three have in common kind of. Yeah. I love the way that this record plays with extremes. Like, I mean, this is something Yeah, I think that comes really prominently within some of this GRM stuff as well. It's just that there are, absolutely no fucks given when it comes to any decorum around the use of the stereo field extremes in yeah. volume silences it's yeah amazing isn't it it is and it's it, in a way it kind of takes on some of the qualities of like what romantic music used to do so like in uh -huh. if you think of beethoven and his sonatas it was all like storm and stress where like things would be super quiet and then really loud and then it'd be <laughs> like you know and I, I mean i remember when i was little like you know turning on the radio and like there would be a classical station and it was like i couldn't even barely hear what was playing and then all of a sudden there would just be like a timpani drum like really loud in my ear <laughs> and i feel like 
this is kind of taking on some of that um, dynamic, the dynamic nature of that kind of music, which which I really appreciate. And and I actually kind of feel like these multi-speaker diffusion concerts are kind of orchestral just because these voices are happening from all around the room. Mm. So I kind of feel like this GRM music is is orchestral in a way. I think there are certain points as well when you talk about those dynamic contrasts where I was like, oh, is the track finished? I, you know, it's one of those experiences that make me realize I've been socialized to incessant noise within my music in order to tell me that it's still happening, which is kind of sad, but hey. I know, it's true. And I've noticed, like, I even noticed this with my last my last record, the October 1984, that that was included on some SoundCloud <laughs> playlists and I was like stupid enough to look at the comments and some there was like some comment of like this guy who was just like basically like putting like <laughs> like this is really slow like he was just like putting a sloth on there like and I just I I'm <laughs> I'm coming from this place of like you know like the tradition of these composers where I just let things like play out over really long periods of times and then but it's changed the landscape has changed like right you know so it's just like oh wow i gotta i gotta speed things up for For the soundcloud community yeah 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 I know it's always going to be a well often a film I'm going to like if someone comes away and they go and you know what nothing happened and I'm like what you mean the projector didn't turn on or or you know what you mean yeah. it's always that yeah. always tantalizes me I'm like, me well, too. Something happened. Well, so that that kind of like then then we should talk about the Feldman piece because that statement really kind of goes into why I like that piece Yes. So let's talk about that. Let's do it. Yes. So um, for Samuel Beckett by Morton Feldman. Yeah. Tell me about why this one's important to you. Well, it's so it's one of my favorite orchestral pieces. And I like it precisely because if you're just listening kind of on the surface, it actually sounds like nothing's happening or things are <laughs> things are happening so slowly that you almost can't really tell that they're happening. But then if you listen closely, the, there's all of this um, detail that's kind of shifting back and forth and sounds are staggered and then they kind of come back together again. Like, so it's this, it's almost kind of reminds me of, you know, when you listen to an orchestra tuning up, which is one of my favorite sounds, like yeah. how there's so much happening, but actually nothing happening because it, the, the stuff that's happening is just happening so consistently or patterns kind of return that there's just, it's almost like monolithic. And I think that's what this Feldman piece reminds me of. Yeah. I mean, that's such a great analogy because as well, this is like an orchestra that never tunes up like for the entire time. Exactly. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because I, 
I was like really obsessed with learning how he could do that with an orchestra. I, I just couldn't figure it out. And I finally got a hold of this score. I got a hold of this score and then another score for this, uh, for oh, another wow. piece called Coptic Light. Yeah. And it was so interesting to look at the score because I think I was naive in that I thought that it would just be a lot of stuff that repeated, but it wasn't at all. It was like really like just things would ever so slightly change. And like, there was all of this, um, kind of interval stuff where like the intervals between notes would change very gradually. Oh, and wow. like, yeah, it was really beautiful. It really was like, um, reading a complex, like I, I think he called the other piece Cop Coptic light that I was just talking about that sounds kind of similar to this one. I think he called it Coptic like because of some kind of weaving technique. And that is exactly what the score is like. It's just like things are kind of being woven in and out really, really delicately and carefully. And there are all these details that just kind of come in and out. And then after I saw that, I was just like, it was just a revelation and I could kind of listen to it differently. So was it, is it like really rigorously scored? Oh, absolutely. It is. A, it's so rigorous that, I mean, this guy was obsessive, first of all, about dynamics. Like he was, it, it's never just like pianissimo PP. It's like PPPP, you know, <laughs> it's like, he's like almost, it's almost like he's controlling, being a little bit controlling with the dynamics. And mm. he also did things like, um, he had all the string players cause it's a really string forward piece. Like it's like just a lot of like a big washy string sections, but he had, all of the string players put these clamp mutes on the strings so that the strings would just would not like ring out. They would just be really quiet and muted, oh, wow. which is which kind of makes the whole piece in a way, because if you do orchestral pieces and you use a lot of strings, they're actually really loud. Like it's hard, even if you have a string section playing pianissimo, it's still going to be loud. And there's like some, kind of like natural dynamics that are there that he kind of takes away by having them put these mutes on. And so there's just all of these little, it's, it's really like dynamically, especially controlled. Like that was like his whole thing was just like quiet, you know, very um, static kind of dynamics throughout. Oh, so cool. Um, yeah. And the idea of a clamp as well, it's perfect, right? It's just, like this this yeah. kind of stifled half motion that can't yeah. complete oh so good um exactly how, yeah do you remember how you came into Feldman's work oh gosh that's a hard one because I think I've known about his work for a long time he kind of became the go-to composer for like people like me who are doing weird music and making things with field recordings that were kind of <laughs> <laughs> like spacious like it was like yeah this like it was like phil niblock you know Morton <laughs> yeah. Feldman, like <laughs> just people like that like a lot of my friends were like oh you have to listen to this guy like this this guy really he's just got he know he's, he gets it like he gets the whole space <laughs> thing and so that's how i and at first i think it was just like listening to some piano works like triadic memories or something like that mm -hmm. and then i think my friend seth neil who's also a composer like turned me on to this piece and then i was like whoa this is like something else because it was just lush it was like i think 
some of his other kinds of pieces are a little bit too stark for me. Like they're just so austere and cold mm. and kind of like, but this is like, it has that kind of austere quality, but it's like lush strings, you know? So it's kind of this weird combination of those two things. Yeah. And um, I understand as well. I don't really know much about the chronology of his work, but this one is shorter as well. So what is like 45 minutes, which I think yes. is, sounds like a bit more of a merciful duration for Felton, <laughs> exactly. right? <laughs> which, and that's true. And he would, it's kind of reminds me of how, I mean, first of all, 45 minutes for an orchestral piece is long. It's really <laughs> yeah. long, not really long, <laughs> but um, it kind of reminds me of like, I have friends who are in noise bands and, you know, the whole noise genre, like every song is just like a minute long because the it's so loud that it, there's like a ratio of like loudness yes. to to time and i think this is just the opposite where there's like this ratio of like quietness to time that yeah. some composers have where they're just like it's really quiet and it's gonna be really long so <laughs> what i think is when i experience this stuff live it's almost it's really hard to deal with actually like i don't i don't find like i mean if i could ever hear this piece live i would just be there in a minute but yeah with some new kinds of Feldman pieces i i don't actually enjoy hearing them live because i'm they're so quiet i feel like i can't move and i become very like self-conscious and yeah and they're so long and it's just like ugh, this is a drag <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah but, um yeah so it's just yeah there's that there's that whole durational element in this kind of music that's that's always present and i and i'm you know i think he must have known that there's some difficulty in in going through that entire duration yeah especially because i i feel like the way that he constructs music avoids any indicators that might tell you how long you've been listening for so yes you, you can be and halfway that... down and be like have you I don't been know. Three hours or yeah. <laughs> and so, okay, so that's not only just true for the audience, but that's also true for the performers, apparently. This is apparently Ooh. this is very difficult to perform because it's really easy to get lost. Like it's you just don't and once you get lost, it's hard to like there are no obvious cues. Because if you think about orchestral music, you think about like, okay, something happens and then something else happens. And that drum thing could be a cue. Like, you know, yes. when that yes. timpani thing happens, like the trumpet will come in. So like, maybe you get lost. I mean, I hope you don't, but if you do, <laughs> you, Listen might, for the timpani. you could use yeah. that as a cue. But in this, there's nothing like that. I mean, it's just a landscape painting. Like you, it's just like getting lost in a desert or something. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, I guess as well, it's, um, it's something that superficially I, I, I think and I, maybe knowingly uh, you probably know Feldman's work better than I do but like knowingly adopts the superficial presence of something that wasn't composed and so feels yes. like something on first listen you could be like oh they're it's just popping where they feel like it yeah like right. you know flat, yeah, which, exactly. which again must really scramble you where it's these notes that come in at you know kind of this non-linear point like not necessarily on any discernible beat it's like right <laughs> and that's the amazing i mean that's the crazy thing about these scores it's like everything is is just ridiculously metrical like all everything is counted there's no like and that was one of the reasons i wanted to study the score too because i was kind of like 
I became interested in making orchestral music, but I was kind of coming from this place of working with like improvisers and things. So all of these, this kind of formation, the one that you're referring to of kind of like this openness, whenever I had encountered that, it was always just kind of by accident or just by saying like, this is the vibe we're going to go for. <laughs> this is the kind of space we want. And mm. in this case, it was just like, wow, this is completely scored to the just tiny, tiniest little note, you know, and that was just amazing to me. And it's called for Samuel Beckett. So uh, how much do you know about Beckett's work? Well, I mean, I think like this whole idea of, of waiting and not knowing, you know, like when, right. when things to end or like the, <clears throat> the lack of any like sign signposts or cues or anything is very like Beckett. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, I haven't, the only, I've seen the uh, Waiting for Godot play. I haven't read any of his other works, but just even from that play, it's all about just duration and time and, yes, you know, yeah. Yeah. Do you, are you familiar with his writing? No, see, this is it. I've, like you, I think Waiting for Godot is the only thing that I've encountered. I've listened yeah. to like an audio play of that. And again, you know, kind of absorb some of the themes and I think enough to feel like when I saw that this was for Samuel Beckett that I could see some kind of um, alignment going on there. But um, Exactly, that, it just makes sense, yeah. Yeah, there was, um, there was a cool review of this actually that I found where it's like, it sounds like the players have run short of possibilities and are reduced to making <laughs> the same moves again and again. And then it says, in chess, the game ends with checkmate. In four, Samuel Beckett, the game horrifyingly never ends. Um, <laughs> exactly. Which is, it never ends. Until it does. <laughs> Until all of a sudden it does. Well, and it's over. I was going to say, because the ending is, um, it's just, I mean, it's quite abrupt, if I recall, right? It just kind of yeah. stops, yeah. right? Totally. Love yeah, it. so in a way, it kind of reminds me of like what they say about your memory of time. Like if you think about, and this I guess is kind of like Beckett-like too, but if you think about being a, in these poor people who have to be in prison for, you know, all of these many, many years, you know, and um, it's not even addressing like what they did to get there or something, but just the experience of like being in that kind of environment with where you do the same thing every day mm. and it, the days kind of run together. You look when you're doing that, it feels like, you know, it's just endless. But then maybe when you look back, like you don't remember any details. So it's a completely different kind of idea of like, what time was whereas right. like you are in a situation where all of these different things are happening and things are changing all the time like later on you might feel like that was longer than it actually was or something so in a way like this this piece is kind of like that it's like it's like being in a prison <laughs> prison of sound <laughs> i'm kidding not it's a nice it's a it's a beautiful beautiful piece so
Olivia, one more question for you, yeah. actually. Um, which is, I mean, I read in a previous interview how I think someone asked about what music you've been listening to, and I think this may have been around like 2017, but you said that actually what you do more of is buy micro cassettes on on eBay and listen to those. Um, what does your listening look like now? Is that still the case? Uh, do you listen to a lot of music now? I'm I'm out of I'm happily out of the micro cassette phase because that was starting to become like a very expensive habit <laughs> and it's also like costly in terms of space I just have so many of these tapes like I can't do oh, that wow. anymore so thankfully that's over I was also in like a shortwave radio phase where all I did was listen to shortwave radio and I'm out of that phase and right now I'm kind of just listening to you know this record that's out now and then the next record that's coming out after that is just like going to be mo more way more melodic <clears throat> so i'm just thinking a lot more about melody so i'm just listening to like pop music that i like and things like like there is there's actually a record i really love that i was going to include on this list but um but i didn't just because there were you know only so many i could do but it's this um re-release from this Korean singer and the release is called Now and it's just like one of the um, I gotta find her name let me see what it is um, but it's like one of the best like psychedelic pop records I've ever heard and I was just like had that on repeat oh, for a long cool. time during the pandemic yeah her name is um, Kim Jung Mi and the um, record is called Now so I was just really into that record because of the just the melodies and the way that the songs are structured so it's kind of just like yeah, just kind of melodies and pop music right now. Awesome, nice. I'll include that as a um, yeah, honourable mention exactly. in the in the yeah. show notes. Nice. Um, well, Olivia, thank you so much. This has been so nice to speak about your record and three absolute stormers as well in terms of important records. Okay. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's been fun. And to everyone listening, I'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.